we're going to send that video out for you guys to watch another two or three times. Um, because there is, I mean, goodness, we could literally do a sermon series on that video. You start with, I got to a point, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Yeah, I think a lot of us have been there. You got to him saying, I tried to read the Bible without taking it too seriously. We won't admit how many times we've been there. You talk about, I felt like I was betraying my family and my friends and my culture. And, but you look at this willingness to pursue it, right? Because God's word compel. I mean, we're going to send that out so you guys can rewatch that. But we wanted to start with that. Um, because this week, as we continue to look at Jesus's life, last week we looked at in Luke, where the Bible describes Jesus. It's talking about Jesus, and it's saying Jesus, he, him. And then all of a sudden the Bible switches, and it says, the Lord replied. And we looked at Kyrios, and we looked at who Jesus is. Because remember, the purpose of this whole series, as we go through Jesus's life chronologically, his ministry event by event, the point of this is to know Jesus better. We have to know God better. We have to know God better. We have to pursue knowing God better and deeper. And then the second half of that is as we get a more proper understanding of who God is, as we, as we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, then we can have the proper framework to consider who are we. And so last week we looked at Jesus is Kyrios. And so naturally the question in my mind then is, what does that mean for us? If Jesus is Kyrios... If I've identified who the Lord of all is in my life, then what does that mean for me? And scripture talks about, and this man shared his testimony, that we are both called to be and to make disciples. We are called to be disciples. We're also called to make disciples. So then the question is, okay, well, so then does that describe me? If I'm called to be someone who is a disciple making disciples, does that describe me? Do I understand my place and my identity in light of who Jesus is as Kyrios. And as we move through Jesus' life and ministry, this is what we next come to. Last week was who is Jesus, this week is who are we? And so if you want to turn with me or if you just want to listen, we're going to be in Luke 14, just 10 verses, 25 to 35. And this is Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you that you are reaching the unreached people. Uh, we thank you for this man's story of coming across the Bible, laying in the street, and the power of your word compelling him to go find a Christian. God, we thank you for his boldness. We thank you for his bravery. 
that he's honest enough to admit how scared he was to go in, but that he was so compelled by you and by your spirit that he knew what he was about to do was going to hurt his friends and family, and he did it anyway. And Lord, we thank you that in that, his family is now curious and open about Christianity. God, we thank you for stories such as these that remind us that you are always working and you are always moving, doing what only you can do. And so God, now as we prepare to look at your word in depth and consider this idea, this question that this man asked, what does it mean to follow Jesus? This question that we are faced with, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Lord, we ask that you would help us understand. We ask that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts to hear your word and to understand it. God, don't let these be my words. Hide me up here, get rid of me up here. Let this be you. Let this be from you, let this be through you, and let this be for your glory. That's what we want. That's why we gather. God, we have carved out this time of our day, of our week, to worship you, and we want this time to continue to worship you. And so whatever is distracting us, whatever is holding us back, God, would you just remove it right now so that we can come before your throne and we can just be fully present to learn from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we look at, so Jesus says something three times in that passage. He says, you cannot be my disciple, or he cannot be my disciple. And I want to understand this phrase first, because everything else we're going to look at hinges on this phrase that Jesus says when he says, if A, then B. It's, a, it's an if-then if statement. If A, then B. And the B here is, you cannot be my disciple. And so what I want to make very clear is that Jesus is not talking about permission. He's not saying, if A is not true of you, then you don't have permission to be my disciple. He's using a word in the Greek that's not talking about, you know, allowance, if you're allowed to do something. He's using a word in that language where he's literally saying, you're, you're physically incapable of it. You just, it's not going to happen. It's the same word that he used in Matthew 6, 27, which we actually also looked at a few weeks ago. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That word, can. Jesus says, who among you, by being anxious, is physically capable of adding an hour to your life? I mean, who, who, who among us in this room, right? Well, the more anxious and panicked and bitter and, like, the more I'm this, I have the power to physically add to my lifespan. No, Jesus says you can't do that, right? And it's that same word that he uses here. He says, if A is not true of you, then, then you're physically incapable of being my disciple. It's not a matter of, I don't give you permission to be my disciple. Jesus is plainly and simply stating a fact that, look, if this doesn't apply to you, then you just can't. It's like trying to have your foot in both camps, right? Like, Mike, I want you to come join me, but you can't leave that seat. I want you to be in two places at once. Is that physically possible for you? No. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if this is true of you, or if this is not true of you, then you just can't be my disciple. Because in order to be my disciple, some things are necessarily going to be required of you. And so I wanted to make sure we address this first, because if we don't understand that phrase, if we don't understand what Jesus is saying by that, then we're going to take the totally wrong perspective into this passage of Scripture. If we're viewing this as, well, Jesus doesn't want me to be his disciple, Jesus isn't giving me permission to be his disciple, then that's going to skew how we look at the rest of this passage, but it's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you're physically incapable. You just, you, 
it, it's not going to happen, right? It's like when you talk to someone, you're like, oh, hey, what are your two favorite teams? I, uh, anybody, all right, this is, this is a minor thing that I need to get over. I don't, I don't like bandwagon fans, right? Like, I don't care who you cheer for, just, just commit to them, right? Like, I don't care how good they are. I don't care, like, I'm an Orioles fan. That's embarrassing to admit in public, right? But, like, stick to being an Orioles fan. I used to work with someone who all he wanted to do was be a fan of the winner, right? So when you talk to him on, like, Friday leading up to the Cleveland-Pittsburgh game, it was like, ah, oh, Cleveland till I die. Get out of here, you Pennsylvania boy. And then on Sunday, Steelers would win, because that's what we do against Cleveland. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw that shot. Yeah, not anymore. Goodness, we're in for some rough years. Right, but Pittsburgh would win because that's what we did for a long time. And then you'd, I'd show up Monday to work and be like, dude, how about that game? Go Steelers, huh? I'm like, what? What, what, what happened to Cleveland until I die, right? Like, but what he wanted to do was he wanted both. He wanted both. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're saying, no, you can't. If you're not here, then you can't be my disciple. Because these things are true of my disciples by nature. And this is what's required of you. And so the reason why we're looking at this passage, if we just looked at Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Kyrios, who are we to be? We are to be his disciples. And in this passage, Jesus gives three statements that must be true about his disciples. So if we are going to have a proper understanding of being a disciple of Christ, then we have to understand this passage. And the first thing he looks at is, he says, if you do not hate, your own father and mother more than me. And that sounds, okay, that sounds bad. And it also sounds like something I'm not capable of. But that's what I want to address next, right? So we moved on from, this is what Jesus expects of us. He says, you physically cannot be my disciple. And so then he gives these statements of, if you do not hate your own brother, father, mother, sister more than me. If you do not bear your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. That sounds like a massive monumental task. And so I think the flesh part of us wants to shy away from that and say, I, I can't do that. That's, that's too intimidating. That's too big of an ask. Jesus, you're asking too much of me. I'm not capable of that. And in a way, we're not. On our own, we are incapable of this. On my own, in my own power, by my own sheer determination, my own effort, if I just white-knuckle it, grit my teeth, I am incapable of living like this. But what's the good news? I'm not on my own. You're not on your own if you're a believer. Believers aren't on your own. We looked at this a couple months ago. All believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God's Word reminds us of this time and time again, that we on our own are not capable but in Jesus, we are capable. Listen to this in 2 Peter. This is one of my, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8, one of my favorite passages. We're just going to look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And godliness. All things. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So if you say, well, I'm not capable of living like this, well, why not? Well, because I lack, nope, no, you don't. See, when you start to unpack it, it goes back to we don't have a proper understanding of God in our relationship to him. We start to say, oh, I'm not capable of living like this. Well, interesting, why do you think you're not capable of living like this? Well, because I don't have, full stop, you do have. 
If you are a believer, if you are a genuine, repentant believer in Christ, if you have confessed with your, what did we look at Romans last week, if you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Kyrios, you will be saved. So if you are a fully genuine, repentant believer, you have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and in His power and excellence, you have all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given you what you need to pursue Him. We've also looked at, again, remember the, the thing that I said, the statement that I hate? God won't give me anything more than I can handle, and Paul writes in the exact contrary. He says, no, 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 I was frequently placed in situations beyond what I could handle. But what did I discover in those situations? that nothing was beyond what God could handle. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And he's writing that right before, or right after, rather, things are going to be terrible. See, we love to pull these verses out. Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. We're like, yeah, good things. Jeremiah 29.11 comes after 28 chapters of things are about to get terrible. Philippians 4.13, we love to pull it out, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It comes right after, yeah, I know what it's like to be content when I have absolutely nothing because I have Jesus. David wrote in Psalm 23, 1, Yahweh is my shepherd, therefore I lack nothing that I need. It's what's written here in 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So don't believe the enemy when he says, you're just not capable of following Jesus like this. The enemy is going to try and convince you, you are not capable of being a disciple of Christ like this. And what you need to do when that lie pops up is remind the enemy of the truth in Scripture. Ephesians 3, 20-21, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. How? According to his power at work within us. Make no mistake, it's not about me. It's not about you. You don't have the power on your own to do this. You don't have the power to do immeasurably more than all you can imagine, but it's about his power at work within us. It's about his spirit. It's about what Jesus has done for us. It's about who we are in Jesus. And in Jesus, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. So these statements that we're about to look at of, if A, then B, if this is not true of you, then you are physically incapable of being my disciple. Don't listen to that. Please don't listen to this and say, wow, that's too intimidating. I'm just going to bail. I can't possibly live up to that. No, in him you can. And so that's why this passage that may seem like a bit of a bummer, I believe is actually such an encouragement. I was so emboldened studying this passage this week. Because it was like, man, in Jesus, I can do this on my own. I don't have a chance, but I'm not on my own. And in Jesus, I can live like this. Talk about a life that's a testimony to who God is. Okay, so we understand the two essentials for these three mandates, these three descriptors. Jesus is not saying you don't have permission. He's saying you're physically incapable if they're not true of you. But don't panic that they seem like a big ask because in me you can do all things. And so now let's get into these three, right? And the first thing that he talks about, that one that seems so terrifying and so really antithetical if you stop at the surface level, if, you just, if someone were to just open the Bible and read, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you just stop at that, you're like, wow, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I heard about. Well, so let's look at what Jesus actually meant when he said, if anyone does not hate. Because Jesus doesn't want you to hate your wife. Jesus doesn't want you to hate your husband. He doesn't want you to hate your children. 
He doesn't want you to hate your neighbor. I mean, goodness, how many times does Jesus talk about love one another? As I have loved you, love one another. Scripture says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? So clearly Jesus wants us to love one another. Okay, so then why does he use this language if you don't hate them? then you are physically incapable of being my disciple. Because everything's put in the proper perspective. And what Jesus is saying here is, I need to be so vastly first in your life that everything else looks like hate by comparison. Your love for me needs to so greatly dwarf every other love in your life that it doesn't even look like love. And this is actually a feature that the Bible uses in several places. If you go back to Genesis, Genesis 29, 30 to 31, talking about Jacob and his two wives, Rachel and Leah. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So it says he loved Leah, but he loved Rachel way more. He loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. But then what does the Bible go on to say? Still talking about Jacob in this relationship. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Why? Because Jacob's love for Rachel so vastly dwarfed his love for Leah, it was like he hated her. Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You think, well, wait a minute, I, I work for a paycheck, but I also serve God. Well, no, it's not talking about that, it's talking about love. It's talking about where your heart is, what your heart is desiring, what your heart is pursuing. You can't love God and on the same plane. Through my love for God, I am capable of loving my wife better. But she doesn't get to be on the same plane as God. You go back to the Ten Commandments. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And we hear that word before and we translate it to a ranking system. Okay, well, I just, I won't put, you know, I won't put material success above God. I'll just make it like a close second. And no, what that word before actually means is in my presence. God says in the Ten Commandments, he says, look, if I'm your God, you don't get any other gods. Gods aren't allowed in my presence if I am your God. This is what Jesus is saying here. And if you look at Matthew 10, 37, Jesus actually talks about this a second place. Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me, see, more than me, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So the first thing that Jesus says must be true of his disciples. And we have to ask ourselves, if I claim to be his disciple, is this true of me? Jesus is saying, look, if, if you claim to be my disciple and you love someone or something more than me, no, that ain't it. You are physically incapable of being my disciple if you love something more than me. And C.S. Lewis, my absolute second to Jesus, my favorite, oh, okay, oh man, I got myself in trouble with this one. Uh, behind Jesus, then my wife, then all my family members, C.S. Lewis is my favorite person who walked on this planet. Right? I love, I, like, I love C.S. Lewis. And I think C.S. Lewis frames it so well because he just puts it in such practical terms. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says, it is probably impossible to love any human being simply too much. I love that. And he goes on to explain, he says, look, in light of the fact that this is a child of God, 
right? In light of the fact that this is someone who God made in his image, it's probably impossible to love a human being simply too much. We may love them too much in proportion to our love for God, but it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for the many that constitutes the inordinacy. See, if I love someone more than I love God, the problem isn't my greatness. C.S. Lewis is saying, it's probably not that you love them too much in the sense that they're a child of God who you are commanded to love. It's that you love God too little. And he goes on, he says, the question, and this question I think is, man, this question's hard to answer. The question whether we are loving God or the other earthly beloved more is not so far as it concerns our Christian duty a question about the comparative intensity of two feelings. This isn't about feelings. This isn't about feelings that ebb and flow. C.S. Lewis says, The real question is, which, when the alternative comes, do you serve, choose, or put first? To which claim does your will in the last resort yield? I think that's a brutal question. Of all the standards that God has given us, this is one that I confess, I, this is hard at times. There have been times where God has convicted me that I have put my wife ahead of him, that I have put my friends ahead of him or my family ahead of him. And that question that C.S. Lewis asks, I want us to be willing to ask ourselves, look, the question boils down to, it's not about the intensity of your feelings. It's when the two options butt heads who gets first dibs? When you look at your day, when you look at your week and you're planning out your time, who gets first dibs on your time? God or your spouse? It's been a long day. I haven't spent any time with God. I also haven't spent any me time. Who gets that time? I'm planning out how I'm going to spend my time. I'm planning out my day. Does God get your first fruits? Or does God get your scraps? If you're looking at how you are going to spend your energy, your time, your efforts, your money, if we were able to chart everything you did in a day, a week, a month, a year, and I have to ask myself this, and I, I don't always like the answer, but if I had to look at how I choose to spend my life does God come first, and so vastly first that everything else looks by hate in comparison? Whom do you serve first? Who do you choose first? Who do you put first? If it's not God, then Sam, you are physically incapable of being his disciple. God comes first, plain and simple. There's no qualitative statements to this. God comes first, except in it. No. Jesus says if anyone does not hate his own family in light of his love for me, then Sam, you're physically incapable of being my disciple because I come first. So if Jesus is curious and I identify myself as a disciple of Christ, then the first thing that I see Jesus explains is that Okay, well then he's got to come first, always, in everything. And again, make no mistake, Jesus wants you to love your spouse. He wants you to love your children. He wants you to love your parents. He wants you to love your neighbors. But he comes first. He has to. And it's in our relationship with him, it's in my love for him that I'm able to better love my spouse and my family and my friends. 
But if that foundation of Jesus isn't in the right place, then everything else will crumble. That's the first thing that Jesus lays out must be true of his disciples. If A is not true of you, then you cannot be my disciple. And the second thing that Jesus says is he says, if anyone does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. He says, if you don't carry your own cross and come after me, you're physically incapable of being my disciple. You don't get to follow Jesus and stay where you are. And I'm not talking about moving to a third world country. I'm talking about, I don't get to follow Jesus and say, well, Lord, I, I, just, I still want to hold on to my bitterness. All right, I want to follow you, but I don't really want to change. I want to follow you, but I don't want to sacrifice anything. I want to follow you, but I don't want to serve. I want to follow you, but I don't want to... No. That's not how it works. Jesus says, look, if you don't bear your own cross and come after me, it's not just, well, I picked up my cross and now I'm going to proudly talk about what a martyr I am. We all have a cross to bear. This is mine. No. It's pick up your cross and follow Jesus. And again, it starts with Jesus, right? Jesus has gone before us. Jesus has modeled this. He doesn't say, if anyone does not bear his own cross and figure out it on your own. No, he says, if anyone does not bear his own cross and come after me, he can't be my disciple. Plain and simple. So Jesus says, look, if you're going to be my disciple, then there's personal ownership and conscious decision here. There is a decision to bear your own cross. And again, I love that. I love every word that's in Scripture because it's all there for a reason. What's it say? It says, bear his own cross. Russ isn't meant to bear my cross. I'm not meant to bear Rick's cross. We all have our cross. We have the calling that Jesus has placed on our life that we are meant to bear. And make no mistake, you are meant to bear it. And when it talks about bearing a cross, I want us to take a moment and I want us, I'm going to be very careful when I say this. What the cross represents, the cross of Jesus, what the cross of Jesus represents is one of the most beautiful truths that has ever existed in this world. That God loved you, that God loves you, he sent his son to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sin, and then he resurrected him so that we can have newness of life. That's beautiful. I mean, makes me weep. But let us not forget what the physical, actual cross was. It was a torture device. And it was the world's cruelest torture device ever conceived of to that point. I've shared with you guys that our word excruciating comes from crucifixion. I mean, how many of you would be a little weirded out if you walked into my house and I had a nice glowing painting of an electrical chair in my foyer? That's the last time we go to dinner at Sam's. What's that on the necklace around your neck? Oh, it's a hypodermic needle to remind me of lethal injection. What? Look, I'm not against pictures of crosses. I'm not against cross jewelry. I'm not against cross bumper stickers. But remember what the cross is. The cross was an instrument of death. And when we're called to bear our own cross, what else does Scripture say? Well, think about Think about the, the scope of Scripture. What else does it talk about with this idea of crucifixion? It talks about crucify the flesh, crucify the sin, crucify the flesh desires in us, put to death. The old self has been put to death. So by all means, have your cross emblems, but remember 
that this is a call to put to death anything that is not of God. So when Jesus says, bear his own cross, he's saying, look, if you do not choose to have nothing to do with that old flesh, and again, this is all empowered through him. This is not on our own. But Jesus is saying, bear your own cross. That old self has been put to death. Crucify the flesh. Follow me. Come after me. If you don't want to come after me, then you can't be my disciple. Plain and simple. Jesus is saying, look, there's no, hey, I'll catch up later. And yes, we make, remember when we talked about relentless pursuit, we talked about people make different progress, people are in different places. That's all true. I'm not expecting us all to be in the same place always. I'm not expecting it to always be smooth. I'm not expecting it to never be any hiccups in our lives, periods of trouble, like, right? We're not expecting any of that. But it's pick up your cross and come after me. If you don't, you can't be a disciple of Jesus. This is what he says. And then he also calls us to, and the last thing is he says, so therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. And again, this is giving up all our self-rights. I have the right to be angry. No, you don't. Right? My brother was, I've shared with you guys, my brother was sexually abused. Right? I was angry for a long time about that. At everybody. I was angry at the guy who did it. I was angry at my parents for allowing it to happen. I was angry at myself for allowing it to happen. I was angry at God for allowing it to happen. Like, I was angry. I would have said, well, I have a right to be angry. And the simple truth is, no, Sam, you don't. Because Jesus died for you. Jesus forgave you. Right? So renouncing all that I have, it's renouncing that fleshly desire to be angry. No, I've renounced this. I've renounced my ego. It's not about me. It's not about anything other than Jesus. Because everything that's about me, I've given it up. Jesus says, you give it up. Everything that's about you, if you do not renounce everything you have because it's about me, you can't be my disciple. And again, this isn't some sort of asceticism. We all need to sell our house and just live in the parking lot, owning nothing, right? Like, no. Jesus is saying it's about me. And if it's not for you, then you're physically incapable of being my disciple. And I want us to consider, I want us to consider what's our motivation in this? Because Jesus, I believe he has a very similar conversation in Luke 17. Luke 17, 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Uh, this verse, verse 9. Man, this was not a fun verse to read. But it was such a, a powerful verse to read and remember. Pay attention to this verse, verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Why do we do what we do? What's our motivation? Do I, do I preach so that I can get accolades? Right? And I've got a little notebook in my pocket and, man, ten people didn't say good job. That was a failure of a message. If I ever get to that point, elders, you need to fire me on the spot, right? Like, that, I'm not, that's not a joke. Like, if I ever get to a point where I'm doing this for the personal praise, I expect you to fire me. Why do you do what you do? Why do you show up to church on a Sunday morning? 
Is it because you believe when Scripture says do not neglect meeting together but continue to gather, encouraging one another, when it says come to my house with praise, come to my house with thanksgiving? I mean, do you show up to church on a Sunday morning because it's what God has commanded you to do, or do you do it because, well, I think there's going to be a reward for me at the end? I love when Jesus says to his disciples, does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Mike, you're the, you're the first elder I can make eye contact with. Uh, I show up to church on time every Sunday morning. I'd like a raise. He shakes his head. Why? Why? Because that's expected of me. Right? Like, uh, Mike, I'm preaching a message. Can I have a raise? No, why? Because this is what's expected of me. This is the standard that's been presented for me. Jesus has presented a standard. Jesus has called us to certain sets of behaviors, and we're like, hey, Jesus, I did that thing that you expected me to do. Uh, reward now, please. And Jesus says, he says, does a master thank a servant for doing what was commanded? So as we consider this idea of being disciples and of renouncing all that we have, you think of these three things, right? We have to guard against because even in obedience, there can be that opportunity for the enemy to just distort it a little bit. And there's that, Jesus, I've done these things. My love for you dwarfs every other love in my life. I bear my own cross. I follow after you. I've renounced everything I have. Where's the reward? Like, come on. I see all these people who aren't doing these things and their life is so much easier than mine or better than mine or more prosperous than mine. Like, God, I'm doing what you've asked of me. Can you pour out the reward yet? And Jesus says, no, does any master thank his servant for doing what was commanded? Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 1 Thessalonians 2.4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So why do you do what you do? As we consider this idea of the standards that Jesus has presented for discipleship, Why will you obey those standards? Why will I obey and pursue those standards? Why? Because Jesus has called me to it. This is the standard that Jesus sets. He doesn't leave room for arguing. He doesn't leave room for, well, unless you don't feel like it or if you had a rough week. He understands your pain. He's with you in the pain. But this is still the standard that's set before us. And so why we do what we do must be because for the simple truth that it's what Jesus has called us to. Jesus has called us to hate everyone else in comparison of our love for him. Jesus has called us to bear our cross and come after him. Jesus has called us to renounce everything we have for his sake. And if we don't do those three things, we are physically incapable of being his disciple. So why do we do those three things? This is what Jesus set forth. That's it. That's the standard. And that's what Jesus says in this passage. But what that means for us, again, is don't, don't be discouraged by this. Don't be dismayed by this. This is not a bad thing. This is not a, that's too hard. This is a joy. This is a, man, in Jesus, I have what I need to live this life. Jesus has given me what I need 
to renounce everything I have for his name's sake. In God, I lack nothing. And I can live this kind of life that points to Jesus. Last week we looked at that Jesus is the Kyrios. We're not meant to be. My goodness, if I thought that I was meant to be the Kyrios, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. I mean, seriously, think about the weight of that. Hey, you, you're expected to bear the sins of the whole world on the cross. I'm not getting out of bed. I can't do that. Sam, you need to be the source of peace that passes all understanding for these people. Nope. I mean, I hope that I can share peace with you and point you to Scripture that gives peace, but I'm not going to be the source of peace. I'm not going to be the source of your joy or your contentment. You're not going to be each other's source of joy. We may be a source. We may be a secondary source. But we're not meant to be the curios. We're not meant to bear the cross of the world. What did it say? Bear his own cross. So I read this passage and I see these standards that God has set for us, that Jesus lays out for us. And my response is, wow, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, that's, that's big. I'm, I need to pray about this. I've said this before. One of my regular prayers is, Lord, really teach me what it looks like to love you so infinitely more than I love my wife. Teach me what it looks like to love you way more than I do this church. I need to pray this regularly because it's easy to forget this. It's easy to move past this. But this is the standard that Jesus has set. So the response to that is, wow, this is pretty cool. God has given me what I need for life and godliness. In Yahweh, I lack nothing. This is the standard he has set before me. And in him, I can pursue this standard. Because I've been or I'm responsible for bearing my cross and following after him. What, what else would you rather do with your life than follow Jesus? I mean, if you're a believer, if you've identified yourself as a believer, and if you're here, if you're joining us online and you're not a believer, I want to ask you the question that Toshi asked himself. What's the point of your life? Like, dead serious. If not Jesus, what's the point of your life? Because one day your life will end. What's it all been for? But for believers, we know the answer to that question. For believers, what would you rather do than follow Jesus? Than follow the example he has set? What a joy that these standards are to us. And so as we consider these for this week, I want you to read 2 Samuel 24, 18-25 and Romans 12, 1. Just a few verses, pretty straightforward. 2 Samuel 24, 18-25, Romans 12, 1. And I want you to ask yourself, and this question will become clear after you read 2 Samuel, but I, actually when you read the two verses together, I want you to ask yourself, am I trying to offer God myself without it costing anything? In the 2 Samuel passage, David has the opportunity to offer God something that costs him nothing, and he says no, he rejects it. Romans 12.1 reminds us to live our lives as living sacrifices. So I want you to ask yourself, am I trying to offer myself to God while expecting it to not cost me anything. And then the prayer is simple. Lord, help me be a disciple like you have laid out in these verses. Help me live up to this standard in your power for your glory. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for a high standard. We ask that when we read these words, when we read this challenge from Jesus, 
that rather than shy away from it or shrink back from it, Lord, that we, we recognize that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit and that we are called to walk in step with the Spirit. We are called to walk in the path that Jesus has set for us and to realize that this is a privilege and a joy. Not something to be scared of, but something to be wholeheartedly surrendered to. How awesome it is to follow you. So God, teach us to be disciples according to these standards. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.